Welcome to our latest podcast, Do You Know What? It's such a delight on this really blustery day to be joined in my warm studio by my friends and co-presenters, Leo and Rebecca. I'm Rabbi Charlie Beginsky. I'm currently the Interim Director for Liberal Judaism. Hi everyone, my name is Rebecca Singerman Knight. I am Deputy Chair of Kingston Liberal Synagogue and I run their press and publicity. My name is Leo Mindell. Uh, I'm a member of what is now the Ark Synagogue in Northwood. And Charlie, Rabbi Charlie, sorry, I should say, I nearly did it again. I want to say huge mazel tov because I'm assuming the next time we record, you will be introducing yourself slightly differently. I'm now the Chief Executive Officer of Liberal Judaism, which Yay! is a huge privilege and honour and, wow, really a delight to say that out loud. So just give us a little bit of background, Charlie, uh, before we introduce our guest. Um, how many years have you been with Liberal Judaism? Um, I am just about to enter my uh, sixth year. So in uh, March, it would be five years that I've been there. And uh, But I feel like I've been with Liberal Judaism all my life, really. And uh, I've been working for Liberal Judaism before I worked there professionally for about 10 years. Wow. So uh, it's a great, great time to be there. And uh, you've got lots of plans coming up for the uh, future. It's such an uncertain future at the moment, but I think as we've shown from Liberal Judaism, we've really adapted and been creative and relied on our incredible clergy and lay leaders really to guide us through that period. But it has allowed us to do lots of things that we were already planning on doing. The collaboration between our communities, being able to involve those congregations who are outside London through our networking online, offering things through the virtual media, we will continue to see lots more of that. And um, I am really excited, despite a difficult future ahead. I should say we, we're recording this on Monday, the 21st of December. Um, and it's actually the winter solstice today. And I don't know about you guys, but it's barely light outside. But it's great to be in this virtual studio. Um, but yes, Charlie, as I was saying, I was just so delighted. I think you're an amazing leader. I think what Liberal Judaism has done this year in terms of the collaboration and in terms of moving everything online so smoothly. And I'm even going to have to give a bit of credit to Leo here, aren't I, I'm afraid. But just in terms of the vision and the support behind that in terms of the technological stuff that we've done the Hanukkah party was great fun bizarre but great fun and I, I'm speaking to somebody who didn't grow up in liberal Judaism so um, I really enjoyed it um, but also thinking back to last May and the biennial was just such a great weekend um, and you you guys put that together so quickly and it was really 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 important and a really great event so huge mazel tov so i'm gonna to have to stop being nice to you both thank you rebecca and without wanting it to turn into a massive love-in yeah no we don't want to do that to too much no, nobody wants to hear that charlie to nobody wants to hear that charlie all about you <laughs> Our clergy and our, and our lay leaders. I think the incredible thing about working with somebody like Leo is that although he does the tech, it's the vision that he has behind it. So like with the Hanukkah party, he said... Do you know what I want? I want to see all our congregations lighting candles. There was nothing about the tech there. It was all about the vision. Mm. And I think that that's what we have at Liberal Judaism is that all of us who work for Liberal Judaism, although 
let's hope we have skills. We're also bringing a great big ideological vision and belief with us. And so that's why I love doing what I do, but also why I think Leo loves doing what he does, even when he's a bit grumpy with us sometimes. Only when I don't let him speak. Does that ever happen, Rebecca? Never. Anyway enough of this loving we've gone on way too long with that i'd like to introduce our guest today and it's actually a great link because rabbi charlie i think for people who don't know uh, before you were dizzy heights of liberal judaism you were actually the rabbi of kingston liberal synagogue this was before my time unfortunately i was the um, rabbi there for 15 years rebecca so yeah gosh, it was I really my my starting yeah, i actually didn't know it was as long as that obviously now i am i'm the deputy chair there and i am delighted to welcome a fellow kls uh, member to our virtual couch today leor locker welcome leor thank you so much it's great to be here oh it's fabulous that you can join us we're so happy leor locker is a recent convert to the jewish people she actually went through her conversion with kls so anyway so i'm gonna i'm gonna jump in and ask her just to explain a little bit about her background and how she found KLS. Leo? Yes, so I wasn't born Jewish. Um, the name in my passport still says Christine Maria, which is literally the most Catholic name you could possibly end up with. Thank you, parents. That worked really well. I've started switching over my name kind of officially with paperwork and so on last week. So that's that's been a, a very exciting step. Um, I grew up in a teeny tiny village. It was so small that we didn't have street names and girls didn't do A-levels. And I think I saw my first person who wasn't white at age eight or something like that, just to give you a sense of how remarkably undiverse it was. Um, I ended up running away to the big city, getting an education, and it um, was uh, so thorough in <laughs> trying to run away that I lived on six countries on four continents, then ended up in the UK. Um, my first connection with Judaism was actually in Japan, oddly enough. Um, I had a, a friend there, um, an American Jew, who was at that point contemplating how observant and she wanted to become. Uh, she ended up um, becoming modern Orthodox and moved to Israel, where I visited her a, a few years later. Um, that was really fascinating. I, uh, there were a lot of things that that I really loved about the experience. And at the same time, I also like sort of the, the worldly world in, in all its mess and glory. So I knew that kind of orthodox wasn't quite the right thing. But um, this kind of stayed a little bit in the back of my head. And then um, I moved to the US a couple of years later, lived, lived in Boston, lived uh, near, near Coolidge Corner. For people who have a, a sense of geography, I think there's about six synagogues within a 10-minute walking distance or something like that. And my housemate actually converted as an adult, and she shared, you know, her stories, her friends, and her entire bookshelf. And um, then I started going to classes and just kind of exploring a little bit more what, what that was all about. Then went most of the way towards converting there, and then I basically... Um, my, my U.S. visa was tied to my job and there were some changes, so I had to leave. And then I ended up in the U.K. next, 
um, after thankfully dodging working in Saudi Arabia. I know, not the, not the most obvious choice. <laughs> I was looking for jobs and the only things, uh, the only answers I got were from Saudi Arabia. I guess that's not going to happen anytime in my near future after this podcast. So I'm glad we've got that settled. Um, <laughs> so I ended up in the UK. And then um, kind of the, at that point, it was a little bit on pause because I wanted to figure out kind of what my life in the UK was, was going to look like. And I'm a member of a longitudinal study about spirituality. So every two to three years, I have about a half day in-depth interview about the spiritual journey in my life. And it gets repeated. And kind of as you keep hearing yourself sharing your own story out loud with various prompts, I realized how how much I loved all the Jewishly connected phases of my life. And they seem to have been better than some of the other phases. And then about a week later, I found KLS on Twitter. <laughs> I was living in Kingston at the time. So I'm like, okay, let's, let's see what that's all about. And I was curious how, how open it was going to be, particularly around kind of LGBT um, openness and so on. And then obviously I had my first conversation with Rabbi Renee and then I was like, okay, <laughs> I think that'll work. He, he's, a, he's a wonderful rabbi. Yes. yes. He, is, he is an amazing rabbi. Yes, he is. He is. I'm not just saying that because he might be listening to this. He genuinely is. And also he's got his own congratulations because he is now chairing Colrac joint with Rabbi Rebecca Burke, which is the Conference of Liberal Rabbis and Cantors. So we've got great leadership. So, Lior, because the world that we're in today looks very different to the world we were in a year and a half ago, can you just put some context of when you got introduced to KLS? My, my first kind of real connection with KLS was um, Pesach two, almost two years ago. So that was still live, um, live mm -hmm. face to face. Yeah. So I did that live, did, you know, the classes and yeah. chapats and food sharing and just everything else. The, the first kind of round of, of high holidays. Was there a point in your journey? I hear this a couple of times from uh, people who make that conscious decision. Was there a bit in your mind when you suddenly felt at home? I think ooh, that's a really good question. On the inside, it felt more like I was completing something that was already there. So it didn't really feel like a new thing. It just felt like I needed to kind of fill in some of the blanks. Um, I mean, mind you, there are lots of blanks, obviously, but <laughs> it's a learning journey. Um, on the outside, I think it was when I was meant to go. So I work as a consultant and coach, and I was meant to fly to Copenhagen for a really, really big client pitch at Yom Kippur. Um, and that was, an, an, for me, that was a, a very clear, very obvious no. And I had the conversations with work and that was sort of my first, okay, no, I'm serious about this. And there are a few things that just aren't going to move. I always wonder whether conversion is the wrong word um, yes. for this journey. <laughs> I think there's so much problematic with not only the word, but also the process, because Judaism is so large and yet we really focus down in conversion on the the religious and we've had discussions before on this podcast about what does it mean to be religious but really on the god bit of conversion whereas most of us who grew up jewish we our judaism is a an identity and so a conversion seems wrong and b the limited nature of conversion was that your experience i mean i think you have to start somewhere and in a in a, in a certain you know, I, I do think that there is value in having a structured process 
just because, you know, there are things where it helps to know what you're letting yourself in for. It, it is a really big decision. The cultural thing, I think it's also good that it takes a while. I'm actually glad I sort of did some of the process twice because I feel like I validated it in two very different phases of my life. And it made sense both times. So, you know, in terms of A-B testing, I think that's, you know, that seemed to have worked reasonably well. The process in the U.S. is much, much shorter. So initially, when I heard what the process was going to be in the U.K., I'm like, but I've already done half of that. Like, can't I get, like, advanced credit or anything? Enough already. <laughs> <laughs> but it's obviously not, not how it works because I think you're – your inner life and your outer life need some time to catch up. I think you need to figure out you're essentially like retooling bits of your identity and that that needs time to land. Like you need to not just, you know, memorize like Hebrew and, and stuff, but you need to sort of, yeah, I, I think it needs to kind of start landing. And I think you're also, you know, you're joining a community, which wasn't as clear to me in the beginning. That also takes time. You need to meet people and hang out with them. And I think that's the biggest, to me, the biggest thing people have to understand is that in some religions, very much on your own, it's, it's a relationship between you and the religion and the religion being with, with God, etc. In my experience, Judaism is about joining a community and it, it comes together and it works best as a community. It's a shared it's a shared environment. And I think that either puts people off or brings people in. Is that what you found that you were being pulled into that community? And it's either like, do I like this community or don't I? Next to the religion is quite important. I think it is. I think it is because it's yeah, I don't think I realized in the beginning how big of a part that would play. Um, so I'm not in particularly close contact with sort of my biological family for a whole long list of reasons. So for me, it was like I found kind of new aunts and uncles and great aunts and cousins and, you know, all of a, a little bit of that. And, you know, that doesn't mean you have to agree with everybody on, on everything or, <clears throat> you know, people have different lives and different experiences and that's all great. And I think what I particularly loved was, you know, like in my work life, I'm sort of in a, you know, I guess like everyone, you know, I'm, I'm in like my little professional bubble where I meet people doing similar things, having a similar background and then a few other aspects. And, and for me, kind of the, the community at the synagogue is one of the places where you obviously have something in common, but the rest of the life might be completely different. And still it works out. And I think that's kind of, I think society needs needs these points for for stuff to hang together. The one thing that Charlie always says about this is, you know, it's like when somebody walks into a synagogue new, which obviously is a really hard step that they take, about five minutes afterwards at Kiddush, everybody swarms around them to see who they are, what they're doing, where they are, and sign them up for everything. You either like that environment or you don't. Did you find that when you, when you walked in with KLS? I found it a little bit scary to walk in, so it definitely feels like a big step. Like, despite the fact that I like hang out on podcasts and so on, I think I'm a reasonably private person. So, you know, you obviously do get all the questions from everybody about your background and, and who you are and what you are all about. And, and that felt it felt a little bit like a, um, a job interview, but much more personal, but in a good way, you know, and also you can ask questions back like nobody's stopping you, you know, and then, then you start a, a good conversation. It's really fascinating because it 
opens up for me a whole set of questions about why we've had this huge increase of people wanting to convert during this period. So on one hand, as Leo said, we have the people who it's easier to creep in the back of a community without being pulled to the front and asked all the questions and, as I want to say, become the treasurer by next week. But I also wonder whether in this period of isolation, when many of us are feeling quite alone, that actually the Jewish community being online or the progressive Jewish community being online has provided people with a sense of community and belonging that, yes, Yes, it's not the same as sharing food. And you've mentioned that centrality in Judaism of sharing food, of breaking bread. But it is feeling connected. And I wonder whether that's also a huge reason that people are finding a reconnection and a new connection to Judaism in this time. I think so, because it's, you know, I think 2020 particularly is, it's almost like it's a collective midlife crisis. Everybody's looking at themselves, at their own lives, at society, at, you know, how, how they want things to be. And then, then you kind of need to go somewhere with the bigger questions. And I think particularly if you want the depth and you also still, you know, if, if it's not like, okay, I'll just drop out and open a surf shop on a beach nobody's allowed to go to, or, you know, like, like if, if you still want to be in the world with who you are, then, I mean, I obviously made that choice. I'm clearly biased, um, but that's, I think that's a good place to go to. I think in 2020, we've seen a sort of perfect, uh, perfect storm of supply and demand, um, not to make it sound too kind of capitalist, but I think there has been a real demand for something meaningful because everyone has gone through a really difficult time. Um, and then progressive Judaism and liberal Judaism in particular has been there, very visible online, on people's social media feeds. And people have been able to, like you say, uh, Charlie creep in at the back and just kind of observe from afar and just check check out what it is. And I've been astonished, and I know other communities have, of how many people have been coming forward um, and seeking some kind of conversion route or some kind of involvement in the community compared to, you know, the previous few years. I think that's highlighted by this week um, with the fact that uh, we've gone into this new super lockdown. And for a lot of people in this country, they were planning to have their yearly get together for Christmas, which has obviously had to be put on hold because that is the time of year that they were communicating. And you're hearing a lot of cool talk about people who are like, this is the first time they do it. And I'm really surprised when I talk to some of my friends on that side who don't use Zoom on a regular basis for a social thing. They were only literally, and now they're trying to work out how to do it. We're doing this every single week. Mm. Charlie, from your perspective as the person leading the, the movement, where do you see that fitting in? I think it's really complicated. And I think, as you suggest, it is up to us to have the vision of the next steps. I think we have to first acknowledge how zoomed out our community is because of being so creative and running at such a pace. And although we knew it was a marathon, I don't think we knew it was going to be this long. A marathon and we were getting very ready to be hybrid so we were really thinking and excited about how do we use this technology and still be in person and do these two things not lose one or the other and now we're completely back in the in the zoom world in the online world and it is quite hard not to 
receive that renewal of energy from having been back together again. And now we are looking at a long game again. We're looking at um, potentially Pesach and Passover and Seder still being in this environment. And so I think as a movement, we have, or a leadership of the movement, we have a responsibility to think about that uh, collaboration. So for me, one of the things I really want us to be thinking about in the immediacy is not running, everybody doing everything all at the same time but how can we offer a shared usage so that we give people some time out the people leading some time out and I think that that's going to be an example that as liberal Judaism we can set which is it does not mean that because I go to Birmingham services this week because they're leading and demonstrating leadership at that point that I'm going to leave Kingston because they're my home actually I can very much allow myself to be part of the greater community and we can lean on each other and I think that that's where our 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 vision has to sit so the other point I was going to ask you Leo um, on your conversion one of the things I always find is that people who have uh, Jews by choice which is one of the terms that people sometimes use they know a damn sight more than some of us who were born with it how have you found it that you're literally going, well, I seem to have read the book. I, I understand the manual about some of this and you lot haven't. Do you find that in some of the conversations that you have that you have actually, because the stuff I learned, I learned before my bar mitzvah. And quite honestly, the, the, the biggest objective in my mind at that time was to get out of that class as soon as possible and do something that wasn't learning. How have you found that, that your knowledge of some of this is quite extensive in areas? That, that's a that's a really good question. So I was um, I was raised Catholic. So some some of the things I would have read at a similar age group, obviously with a completely different lens on it. But I you know I I do remember kind of some of the uh, some of the things. It was really nice to to get to know this as an adult. So I, I definitely hear your point there. And, and obviously, you know, you need to kind of bring children along at the age that they are into, into how that works. What I particularly enjoy about liberal Judaism, it's not so much here is the manual, you know, now go, go and implement it and all the questions, there's answers written there and that's how you do it and all other ways are wrong. That's not how liberal Judaism works. Like if you want to join a religion to get answers, you're probably better not of not being a liberal Jew because you get more questions. And that's actually really cool because it's, it's really good questions. And then you, you basically... You spend the next few decades with everybody else figuring out, okay, what, you know, what does that mean for our day and age and, and, and how do we want to live that? And I, I think you've summed that up because uh, most, ans- most answers you get from a rabbi when you ask them a question is, what do you think of it? Yeah, another like, question. Oh, right, okay, thanks. So that's it. I also think <laughs> there's this sense, and I'd love to pick it apart a little bit more with you, Leo, which is about that crossover of identities that you find in liberal Judaism that makes liberal Judaism a home for people. So in some ways of having felt outside of something in another area of your life that therefore it's not that we're a group of outsiders but that many of us have this cross identities that in liberal Judaism we find others. Does that ring true for you? It does, it does. So I find and I'm obviously still I think at the very beginning of of that journey but I find lots of different areas of my life that this starts to resonate with. 
So I have a background in psychology and coaching and so on. And I was um, in, in spring, there was the Musa conference, which, which I joined, which was amazing. And um, that's the- Rabbi Monique Mayer who organizes um, that. You can often see on uh, liberal Judaism doing lots of Musa. So a big shout out to <laughs> Rabbi Monique. So I, I wrote one of my two conversion papers on Musa. So I went fairly deep in kind of uh, reading up more on the background and trying to, to put that together with my psychological background. And what was so interesting was, I think Judaism always resonated with me because it kind of seemed to gel pretty well with what I knew about psychology and, you know, the way humans are wired. And what I realized is it does because that's kind of where Freud lifted and shifted half the stuff from. (laughs) (laughs) I remember sitting in the British Library for multiple days and I'm like, that's why it makes sense. You do it from there, Sigmund. That was such a funny, it was almost like I was rediscovering psychology psychology kind of backwards it's very funny you know because when um, you're in Israel and um, you speak to Israelis who say you know I'm not religious and I'm that have that's not part of my life and yet every single bit of their learning and their culture and their language is so immersed in Judaism and you find the same with Freud I find it with you know playwrights with writers that even when they don't realize that their religious connotations. That's why I think this idea of religion is it is you, so limited sometimes. By you missed society. one off there, Charlie. You missed off Saint Leonard Cohen on that list. Yes, exactly. I was going to say musicians, absolutely musicians, <laughs> poets. Bernstein. When yep. you sit there, and even when Leonard Cohen decided to not write about Judaism. He sort of somehow he still did. He still was whining about Judaism. Um, and I think that's it. You know, we unpack, as you say, you know, we comes with the whole responsibility. And you, you've covered that, Leo, very nicely about how you said you came into this and, and that whole thing that you've, you've walked in. You know, I'm genuinely interested about that side, especially, as I said to you earlier, about people that, that came in and made this as a choice rather than, than one. One of the events that I did for Hanukkah was I was involved with something with the embassy. Some points that I had to deal with with the embassy sums up exactly what you were saying, Lior, and Charlie said. So I was dealing with, in quotes, Israelis. I was explaining to them how to light a menorah. <laughs> But I wasn't, they weren't listening to me. They were effectively on a Zoom call shouting at each other while I was trying to explain what, how to light a menorah, which side you light it from. You either can sit there and go, that's really rude, which would be an outside perspective, or you can sit there and go, but that is actually the point. And if you understand that's the point of what happens in Judaism and how people work, and you and you can live in that world then then it's great i've got such a clear image leo you just painted such a clear image of that zoom call i just think that's brilliant it's just how it how this how you have to deal with it and i'm sure as a rabbi charlie you sit there and you find sometimes you're explaining things to people and you realize they're not really listening to you explaining it they're deciding they've already decided in the first sentence they know more about this than you do and they're going to listen to you to shut up so they can tell you what they think about it do you find that a lot find that all the time and i think it's also i know i do it myself but i also think it's a huge opportunity that we have particularly as liberal Jews, where we understand that dissent and not agreeing with each other is okay. 
that actually it doesn't make us weak. It doesn't mean that we haven't got an ethic or a value, but actually we recognize that it's the multitude of voices that enables us to be strong. And the fact that we can provide a place to hold that is incredible. And I think we have to believe our own hype on this because it does take huge amounts of confidence to big up the other and to say, do you know what? Actually, I did. In between not listening, I did listen and I did learn and I've changed and I've shaped my opinion. And for me, that's quite amazing. That's a real opportunity for for growth and also to show this world that is so much at the moment about one big booming voice that actually there's a there's a really different way of, I think of leading. I find that Judaism lives in the grey. It's not a black and a white. It's a grey thing. There really isn't. You can sit there having and I walk into a discussion with a preset idea and concept in my head of what I am right. I then will sit there and listen to people who also are right. And I may in many times walk out with the opinion that they were better and they were right. That doesn't mean I lost an argument. It means that I was persuaded to move forward. And I think it's so refreshing as well in this day and age. Charlie, you talk about the one booming voice. I think, unfortunately, in this day and age, there are two opposing polarised booming voices. And in so many spaces, and I'm thinking particularly of social media, but not just that, you're either on one side or you're on the other. And if you feel that you're on another side, sometimes you don't even feel that you can make, you know, express yourself through fear and anxiety of being shouted down by the opposing, um, the opposing booming voice. And so I think it's so refreshing to be able to be in a space where it's possible to be slightly more nuanced. So and this is my Limud session with one of uh-huh. my Limud sessions. Link. <laughs> can you just so, explain what Limud is for yeah. those who don't know? So Limud is this incredible program that happens around this time every year. So for all those Jews who aren't celebrating Christmas in, uh, well, this year, none of us are celebrating Christmas in the same way. But for those who usually don't uh, celebrate Christmas comes together in person usually for a whole variety of educational and social and cultural events and what's incredible about Limud is it brings together all the denominations and none so people who are uh, from all places in the Jewish community get together and this year because we can't be in person Limud is happening online with the same packed program the same incredible diverse speakers and educators and musicians coming together for a really great program that starts on the 27th on the Shabbat and runs all the way through to New Year and one of the sessions that I'm doing is with Rabbi Dr Judith Rosenberry who is one of the great greatest theologians of our time really and I don't say that lightly and um, we are going to be talking about theology and leadership and how you are able to have a multiplicity of voices and how theology and leadership can work in that tension 
and um, to not end up with soggy leadership or, as Judith talks about, soggy theology. I'm also really, really excited to be in conversation with Sean Berry, who is running for the Green Party as a London mayor and has been the leader of the Green Party for uh, some years now. And we have many in our community involved with Eco Synagogue and also in the Green Party at KLS. You have the wonderful uh, Andre Fries, mm-hmm. who um, I know has worked with Sean for, for many years. So I'm going to be in conversation with her. And also we have Liberal Judaism's own Lily's Legacy uh, panel is going to be doing a session on Limud. So I really encourage all of you to check that out. I went through the programme, Charlie, last week when it was published, you know, with a pen and paper and was, you know, making making a note of all of the events that I wanted to attend. So many of them clash, unfortunately. Yours was one that I put an asterisk next to. And asterisk being my own code for this is definitely one you want to attend. Um, it's my first Lemur anyway, because I haven't been before. Um, so and I'm sure, again, I, I expect the numbers are going to be really significant because there'll be so many people like myself who haven't attended before but will take the opportunity to do so. On the subject of conferences, I just wanted to cycle back actually and talk a little bit about the Ritual Reconstructed Conference that Lior was um, part of last week Um, because I think this is really fascinating. I think our listeners will be really interested as well. Lior, can you tell us a little bit about what this conference was and how you came to be invited? Yes, so the conference is an update of an event and and a whole series of things that ran a couple of years ago. And the idea is to basically look at, at Jewish rituals and to see how how they might need to evolve or what, what might need to happen to make them fully inclusive for um, LGBTQ plus people. And um, so this was kind of a, an update. And they were given that it was Hanukkah, there were eight panels. And how I got to sit on one of them was um, basically I had written a blog about my conversion and um, Professor Margaret Greenfield, who who runs the conference from New Bucks uh, University, has read the blog and then got in touch with Renee and then Renee passed on my contact details, which which feels um, very sort of exciting. Uh, So I got asked to be on the panel about um, LGBT identities in uh, during times of coronavirus, because a lot of my conversion and so on obviously happened during the pandemic and then to see what what changed basically at the I guess again intersection of multiple identities right the the point of being LGBT the point of converting and coronavirus happening at the same time um, and uh, and that was quite exciting yeah so I got to share a little bit we'll put a link to that blog in our show notes Leah because it really really was wonderful and a great piece of writing but again for our listeners who won't have read that so can you just explain a little bit about your own identity in terms of lgbt and how that also was factored into your conversion because again this is a great story yes so i identify as non-binary which for me really means in between male or female so if you imagine a square and the two diagonally opposite corners are male and female then there is an option that's both and there is an option that's neither and possibly also something that's just something completely different. And um, I wrote about that so we can we can put that blog in the, sh- in the show notes as well if, 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 if uh, that visual does your head in when I'm trying to explain it in words. Um, yeah, so it's really, it's really the space in between. So I, I remember I had the first 
gender conversation uh, at age five in a Catholic kindergarten when I got told I moved like a boy, which apparently was a problem. I also don't even know what that means, but apparently that wasn't what was meant to have happened. I did think for some period in my life, I did think about transitioning, but then looked into the details and also kind of, I guess for me, it didn't really make sense because I felt like I would still be looking at the space in the middle, just from the other side of the room. So I'm like, okay. Um, and, and basically also I'm, uh, I've lost two really close friends to cancer um, a couple of years ago. And I've decided, okay, I have a body. It might not have been the one I would have picked from a catalog had there be one. But, you know, I have a body. It's working. I'm perfectly healthy, you know, uh, thank God. And it's, you know, so I, I've decided to not mess with that bit. Um, but, yeah, so so non-binary is kind of what, what I'm going with. I wonder whether there would have just been such different conversations if you'd have been growing up today because I think about some of the gender conversations that I have with my kids and I also credit LJY because LJY Nets are our youth movement that that two of them so far have been part of have a lot of these conversations from very very young with kids and are really conscious about language and about identity and certainly my my kids have think about gender in a totally different way than I would have even had the language to talk about when I was their age. And they challenge, you know, they're not old. My eldest is uh, coming up to 12. They challenge my language and my assumptions all the time. I, I um, think that they challenge your language. So <laughs> I have exactly the same with mine. Yeah, my, yeah. my daughter, who is a uh, LJY uh, movement worker, yeah, she's one of my, my kids' leaders. Yeah, Very chal- important. Challenges my language on use, which is really good. Uh, she doesn't challenge it in a negative context to say that I'm using the wrong words, although she will prompt out that I am. And I, she's not challenging me using the wrong words in a you must change. She's just saying that that has been updated or has been modernized. Mm. And there is a m- more modern way of dealing with that subject without it being uh, a conflict, which. We all learn. We all learn. Uh, language I, is an evolving to, subject. I do have to say liberal Judaism is, is really amazing in, in I mean, in, in many ways, but particularly in, in that way as well. A lot of, like, if I'm thinking back, I went to kind of the, you know, the drop-in biblical Hebrew classes at the Montagu Center. And I think in a lot of the evenings, the, the percentage of LB, LGBTQ plus people in the class was probably north of 50% which is not, I mean, that's not the percentage in the general population. So there definitely seems to be an openness and a place where people feel they can go to. In my conversion, because obviously Hebrew is a, is a very gendered language, like it's just, you know, you can make all sorts of things happen, but there is sort of a very stable core set which, with which to work with. And a lot of the, the paperwork, the, the formulations you use and so on are gendered. So, you know, you're if if you if you convert you you become but Abraham Vesara or Ben Abraham Vesara so you know son of Abraham and Sarah or daughter of Abraham and Sarah now if you're non-binary there isn't really grammatically sort of an obvious so the youth movement have really played with Hebrew language in terms of um, their names for leaders and all sorts it's still inbuilt into into Hebrew so I remember being I was studied at Haifa University and one of the courses I did was with this incredible professor who did a whole course around gender and language and the 
evolution of Israel as a state as a result of the language. So although we have this great perception of Israel of being very equal women in the army, etc., etc., she would teach about how the fact that the word for women, women in Hebrew is um, a kind of a vacuum, whereas the word for male is a spear, you know, so you've got this very clear imagery and how... That, subtle. Subtle, exactly. How that... that imagery was inbuilt into the propaganda of Israel and that still you can't help that if you keep talking about females as being vacuum and men as spears you can't help but absorb that um, into the way that their state is built and so you can do all these amazing things that I think the youth movement do around consciousness of language but Hebrew it's really problematic because if we look at the Torah, the um, our scriptures, it uses very terse language. So it uses very small number of words, really. And so you expect within very few steps to create a picture. And if that picture is already a midrash, a story from one word, then you're building up this whole narrative that you're not even aware of that is gendered and pictured and I think both as women, but also as people looking at where gender is within our text, we have to be really conscious of what is unconscious and make it conscious. It does. And I think the one thing I would say, though, in, in, in sort of going in slightly in a different way on this um, and probably being shouted down now, I'm waiting for Rebecca to shout at me for this. Uh, you know, I think that we have to respect what happened in the past and see that some of this language in hindsight is problematic but also it doesn't necessarily mean to say it was it's necessarily was thought to be wrong and the example i'm going to give is that i grew up uh, every friday night doing shabbat we always read the page before the uh, prayers which the page before is the woman of worth and the woman of worth prayer is a very interesting prayer because actually in today's view i'm probably guess that most uh, feminists would view it as very problematic because it talks about how a woman's place is in the home and she's and where she is held far beyond beauty and other things but it wasn't written in my mind to be negative to women it was written to say how wonderful women are and what women do but it now looks quite negative and I don't know you know Charlie you you must know this prayer I assume and you probably have a I very different was, view it, of us view is it, it women of worth because i've also heard the translation be women of valor yeah it's translated in uh different ways uh, most commonly as woman of, of valor and i think leo's mm. right i think often when i meet particularly older couples this is such an important i think that's why it's still in the funeral service for example we haven't taken it out because it's still really important it's something that people um, had it was a way of saying thank you and recognizing the place of the mother and the woman in um in the week you you can have this this and this and still value i i loved what leo was saying earlier about integrity that and i think there is something about integrity that comes with maybe age is the wrong word, but certainly with experience where you are able to bring different parts of your identity together and be comfortable with it. That never happens at the beginning of your life and happens along the way. And that's being able to say, 
I'm a mother or that's, you know, that's part of my identity. It's not something to run away from or to be hide. And I'm a woman, but I'm also this. It's not, it doesn't have to be one or the or the other again just linking that back to the phrase a woman of valor i love that phrase i've actually got a bracelet with the hebrew of that phrase on it because i think i and it's interesting because i didn't have the traditional jewish upbringing that uh, charlie and leo did so i don't have the connotations of that prayer on a friday night being about the woman in the home i hear the phrase woman of valor and what my image is is a brave independent woman um and that's just the connotations that i have personally applied to that phrase and i've got it on a bracelet but it's interesting hearing the connotations of somebody who brought you know who was brought up with it with with that as a slightly more kind of traditional female role but again i think you can reclaim some of this language and put a different spin on it which is more appropriate for for today's woman rather than yesterday's woman. But, but I agree with you, Leo. I don't think it's a negative thing in that context. It was a different different time. Uh, the, the prayer was actually said at my mother's funeral, and uh, mm. not- it was noticeable that Charlie mentioned that. Um, and it was said by my stepfather, and mm. who, who used to read it out every week. And it was a, it was an indirect praise to my mother, and it's something that will always, if I ever hear it, you know, because of it's quite, it's quite a memorable way it said it does come across but i also sit there and sit sit there my daughter would probably sit there and pick the words out about what it's saying and be from her generation quite critical i think the thing but that then her generation may not use it but i mean it would be nice if they could also you know respect it for what it was of a time but yeah, not I, necessarily think it's appropriate to them I, now and i think that's the thing with everything that we're doing mm, we're on a exactly. journey we're on a journey you don't get to be you know as you say you you, you know when you're trying to look at uh, languages you can't sit there and take a language and completely convert it to another language or another meaning for every single word um one of the classic examples in this at the moment we're in we're struggling with pronouns the the world is struggling with the work with the concept of a pronoun when you will say something if you mention about holidays you'll say where did they go on holiday you don't say where does she or he go on holiday you always say where did they go on holiday so we are used to non-gendered pronouns in certain areas but we don't seem to like it when we say they or them in other use in a more sort of political kind of loaded way liberal judaism or ljy the youth part i would feel at times they tackle it a bit too strong Mm. because i don't think it's all about our youth movement is all about that but times you feel like it's the bit that seems to sing out in front of you because it is the a big subject for them yeah they have to take us oldies with them a little bit and i think you know we're on a journey as well but i'd like to actually bring that back to leo because i'd actually like to just finish off the conversation about her hebrew name and where it actually how how, you, how they resolved that because leo you were talking about how normally you would be you know bet or uh, bat abraham and sarah how did how did they resolve it for you? Because this is great. Yes, yeah, so it was um, it was a really amazing experience because we had the conversation. I wanted it to be valid for official purposes and still truthful and kind of not completely violate Hebrew grammar. So we landed on Beit Avraham Besara from the house of, which first of all I think sounds super fancy, lovely, very awesome, um, and it's 
for me, that's actually even better because like son of or daughter of implies a family. But what I got was a family and a house. And I think that's awesome. <laughs> so can I give you another midrash attached to that in the... Please Leo's do, Rabbi. going to say, here comes the rabbi again. But I am... <laughs> I wrote a lot of my uh, rabbinic thesis. It was entitled Penned or Penned, how women are constructed in the Talmud because of gendered language. One of the, the names for wife in the Talmud is Bayat, meaning my house, because one of the interpretations I was looking at is what happens in the Talmud when they don't have land. So you don't have a, a land to go to in the same way as you know, they've lost, they're outside the land, they're in exile. And so therefore all the laws that pertain to land become put onto women. And therefore you get this construction of property and building up fences around because of the the regulations. But you also get this incredible recognition of where is the, the centre of identity Right. In the same way as land become and land is feminine coming to the you you get with um, being transferred also onto women. So there's a really kind of sense of um, construction and identity that happens, I think, all around that word by it. Well, gosh, we're getting deep now. We're getting deep. Let's bring it back to now. I was going to ask about that because of lockdown. Lockdown has actually changed a lot of things. Uh, obviously, a lot of people will sit there and see the negatives. I see a lot of positives. There's a couple of positives I just wanted to mention. The first one is an obvious one to me, is that this uh, lockdown has actually exposed my circle of friends or increased my circle of people that I deal with to include people like yourselves who I have spent time on. And <laughs> one of the ones... Not literally on, Leo. <laughs> people will talk. <laughs> Leah, let's talk about kinky boots. There's been a lot of things which I would have wanted to see or couldn't see that I've been able to see uh, that they've released uh, so that you can watch. One of those um, this weekend was kinky boots, um, which I actually haven't yet watched, uh, although I've seen it, I've been to see it. I, I have a mixed view of this. So I'm a real fan of certain types of uh, musicals. It's uh, just a jump to the left. But... <laughs> I'm also cannot stand Wicked. Oh, what? <laughs> Which normally gets exactly that reaction. The listeners need to know that Leo is looking horrified right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So most people who are musical fans, and when you say you don't like Wicked, I'm like, I just couldn't. Nothing dropped with me with that. What's your favourite musical, Leo? Oh, other than, okay, other than Rocky Horror? Probably I'd say Chicago. Okay. Can I give a shout out to Richard Bloom right now? Because um, he really, really is a not a musical fan. But for his birthday a number of years ago, I took him to see um, Bat Out of Hell, the musical. So I spent the entire musical in tears, absolutely sobbing because it was so funny watching people be so emotional about the Bat Out of Hell musical. <laughs> there was a woman literally next to me crying with with like emotion and so I I was streaming I have never laughed so hard in my life but he loved it absolutely loved it, to the point that this weekend he watched the documentary about the making of Bat Out of Hell the musical and in fact who knew that Meatloaf came out of a musical but theatre background and half the music that he wrote really was designed to be a musical 
That actually makes sense, actually, thinking about it. It, it actually does. makes sense. It really does. But he didn't write most of it. It has quality. Yeah, it, mm. needs, like, it needs to go somewhere. Mm. But he didn't write it, did he? Because it was mainly written by uh, Jim Steinman. Okay, so maybe they were. I have. I honestly, I didn't spend time watching the documentary. I only. This is like second. Jim Steinman. Not only did he write all the meatloaf stuff, he also wrote things like Total Eclipse of the Heart. Oh, that is basically the man who wrote power ballads and uh, orchestral movements. Um, Definitely, an absolute. In my mind, a god of of writing music. (laughs) God of musical theatre. No, it's just his, he, he, you know, the, the orchestral creations that he does in his music uh, mm. has always been something that I Leo, um, find. Power Ballad, Mindell. Yeah. We can't wait to get you onto karaoke. <laughs> on a, absolutely. As soon as, as soon as we're allowed to be in person, he's on the stage. As, as with everything, the first thing you do about any name like that, you look immediately on Wikipedia and go, yep, yeah, one of ours, one of ours. Of course he is. <laughs> That's it. It's the first thing you do. Uh, yeah, so we, we've had Kinky Boots come out. Lior, a fan? Not a fan. I loved it. So I've seen it in, in the musical theatre and I really loved it. Um, I do have a thing for buying shoes, not necessarily of that sort of style or height of heel. But I love the idea of, I mean, obviously the story, the songs, but also the transformation how you take a tradition and make it work in you know in the current and you know how you bring a family business along and all of that I think there's also like if I put my you know my day-to-day hat on there's also lots of good good things to be gleaned from that so if we said which was your favorite musical obviously I'm not allowed to choose one because uh, Rebecca knows that I'm not allowed to include uh, Rocky Horror in there because I've seen it too many times (laughs) what's yours I'm not sure if it's the favorite, but I had an amazing experience with um, Sting's The Last Ship. I don't think that went particularly far as a commercial success, but I managed to see that rather accidentally with himself in role in New York City, which was amazing. And um, I heard, I also watched a documentary, yes, I'm a person, uh, <laughs> where he talks about how that has to do with his family history, you know, coming from a... a a background in a in a shipbuilding community and again i think i think that resonated i think it was um the connection to him and his his own story and how he shared how far he had to get as a person to be able to tell something that had something to do with his own story to kind of reclaim that and and i think for me that that touched me charlie we never covered this i don't think what's your choice of musical if you had to choose one musical I'm a really huge talking of Jewish artists um, Dylan fan I grew up on it and uh, speaks to me and so I saw a girl from the north country which um, is musical with Dylan songs which I loved I just loved problem with him is everything he writes is a sermon as well Mm. stuff of sermons Rebecca, as you're the musician in the room, fine with some musicians, they either really love or hate uh, musical theatre. I like good musical theatre. I I do. I'm going to be a real cliche. I apologise, guys, but I think Fiddler on the Roof, um, I know that's really unoriginal, but I think it is, the music is beautiful. There is also a documentary that's about as long as the film, which I actually went to the cinema to see. I think it was this year. I think it was before lockdown in February. So I went with the daughter to see Fiddler on the Roof 18 months ago in the London run. Yeah, I saw it twice. Yeah. I wasn't happy with it. 
I Leo. wasn't happy with it. This I might just... need to be a, a new podcast no, episode no. where we just talk lo- about the pros and cons. I love Fiddle on the Roof, but I didn't think that the characters came across, the people playing them, the actors just didn't get the nuances of the Yiddish pronunciation of things. Did you see the Henry Goodman one back in about 2007? Yeah. Henry Goodman was better as, as um, Tevye than whoever played the most recent one. So I do weird consultancy for TV shows, mainly random BBC soaps. I did, for one of the theatre companies, a local theatre company, did um, consultancy on their Fiddler on the Roof production. There is something really weird about giving advice about how to make authentic something that for you is authentic Mm. right so how do you put on a talit how do you welcome in shabbat how do you feel what that means it's really hard and i think fiddler the, the experience of watching fiddler in the original the first time is something of an authentic experience and so trying to replicate that somewhere else because for us it's part of our story almost for many of us uh growing up of that it's really difficult. I remember watching it at Northwood <laughs> Binner as a Hader student. I remember going off to see at that time, oh, probably actually slightly before that time because Charlie's a many years younger than me. I remember going off to see Joseph in the West End. Then we all got schlepped Love off Joseph. up there to see Joseph. I grew up, actually, I grew up listening to Joseph. And I don't know if any of you guys saw, did you see that we had the cabaret artists do a special turn. At that KLS. was amazing. Yeah, Shabbat Before Last, when it was the Shabbat where we tell the story of Joseph, Rabbi Janet invited two of her cabaret artist friends to do pre-recordings of Any Dream Will Do and Joseph's Code. So I discussed it with my daughter and I said to her, my first outtake of this was, well, I'm not sure if that's respectful of the Torah service. That's my view of this. And my daughter said, well, hold on a minute. You're happy if a rabbi dresses up as Pharaoh at Pesach. You're happy for a rabbis to dress up in various different things for uh, Purim. Um, you know, why aren't you happy with this? And I thought, well, and I had to sit there and pack it in my head and think, am I unhappy about it? Or I'm actually saying that this person is doing something that is actually breaking or pushing a boundary and the more I thought about it more I had to admit as always and the reason I'm only here anyway is to say that my views are wrong and they need to change to be updated and she's right and but at the beginning of thinking about it and looking at it from the optics of first seeing that and I Mm. watched those videos I'm like is this the right thing to be doing so I think that discomfort to do the rabbi bit again for a second for me I have a real theology of discomfort so I think as important it is that our services are places that are you know that people want to come in or welcoming I think a level of discomfort is really important because actually we have to be jolted into action otherwise prayer is just there to be able to be about sitting on our tachat, on our bums, and feeling like, oh, isn't this nice? It's making me all warm and fluffy inside. Judaism's never been about Mm. being warm and fluffy inside. It's about that call to action and that feeling uncomfortable. And, you know, especially, for example, when we sing about peace, maybe it shouldn't be to, like, this really happy, upbeat tune. It should be to a, like, really uncomfortable tune because we haven't yet found peace so let me ask the person who's new into this conversation Lior, what what do you think of uh, the fact that uh, one of your rabbis janet brought in her friends from um, uh, the two brewers into the service i thought it was amazing because 
it wasn't just, you know, like if you look just at the video, it might maybe, you know, stir up something. But we also did, you know, there was the reading from the scroll. There was there was the laning. And for me, that was literally the book end of, you know, thousands of years of being Jews and trying to make of sense of the world in that way. So for me it made sense. And you know, like like any book ends of a of a of a long of a long thing, the, the end points might be uncomfortable, but you know, there's kind of stuff in the middle. And I think I think the point is it was entirely relevant for that particular Pasha. I mean, I think if you had just done it as a random service, it would have been like, what's this? Is it tokenistic? Is it trying to make a point? But it was relevant. And what was really interesting, I mean, as you know, we didn't receive any negativity or any negative feedback from it. I think there were some people who might have had a similar uh, reaction to Leo, but then who kind of thought about it and thought actually it was okay. But certainly when we sort of shared it on social media, we just got positivity back so, so the so, question to ask is was this pre-planned did uh, renee choose to take that week off or did janet force him out so she could do this because that i do janet, not know that janet, i do not know this is like no, she probably actually... had it on her plans for months to do this <laughs> i think it was a scheduled week where renee renee spends one month one shabbat a month with the wessex synagogue i think it was one of his scheduled things so i think there was an element of fortuitousness about it Leo, you journey to where we are now. It's not a straight journey, uh, and it's maybe it never will so be. To speak. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. That's tea from Leo. <laughs> you know, it's also it's it's life, and it's you know, first of all, you know, I'm going to be Jewish for a few more decades. You know, like it's not. <laughs> No. Yeah, you're not going anywhere. You can't get out exactly. again. <laughs> I mean, we're still trying to figure out the mikveh, and every time I have an appointment, the rules change and it gets cancelled again. So at the moment, I'm like, either it will happen in spring or we'll just do it in the sea at some point and use the big one. But, you know, it's just, it, 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 yeah, it's just you have to, like, well, I mean, what are you going to do? Like, yell at the sky and hope that'll do something? I mean, I might still do that, but, you know. It's worth a try. I think it's a great idea though, Leo, like this idea that when you're in the present, it seems all encompassing and like this moment is never going mm. to stop. Mm. But actually there will be another time and this will be a moment. What's formed and how it's shaped us may be with us hopefully the positives will be with us a lot longer and we'll look back and this will be a, a moment in time along the journey. Today is the winter solstice as I said earlier and I think it's apt to say that it's always darkest before the dawn. It has just been such a fantastic conversation today. I have loved talking to you, Lior, and the way that you have brought so many different insights into our conversation. Mm. And I am going to be Sorry. taking a lot of those away with me into uh, the secular new year so thank you so much for being with us and if people want to find out more we'll post your blog but can they find you on twitter Yes, yeah. So on <laughs> yeah i live on twitter basically <laughs> so on twitter i'm still christine locher um in terms of twitter handle might have to do something about that but yes Thank you. And Rebecca, if people want to find you, where can they find you? Uh, assuming they would want to. Um, I'm at R. Singerman on Twitter, also at Kingston Lib Shawl. And Leo. <laughs> so they can find me on Twitter on WFC Kigo. 
However, most of my social media posting is actually on Facebook for various different reasons, including the fact that I run Let's Talk Borovitz, another podcast stroke video thing about my snowboarding side. So I'm on there and other areas. Thank you, Leo. And if people do want to find me, then I am Rab Charlie on Twitter and as myself on Facebook and always present on uh, Liberal Judaism's website and Twitter feed, liberaljudaism.org. Thank you so much, Leo, Rebecca and Lior for today's podcast. It has been, as always, such a joy to be with you. And I wish you really well over this festive period. And to all our listeners out there, um, you're not alone because there is always something happening in our communities and maybe we can't be together in person, but we certainly can find each other online. Go safely. Thank you so much. See you soon. Bye. See you soon. Bye.